0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners on what to expect in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. And he's joining us uh, from uh, Israel after a great, Uh, and fascinating week last week in France. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us, especially given the time difference. Always
1: a pleasure, Vago.
0: Uh, in, indeed, I want to hear all about Allenby's map uh, in, a, in a minute. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, it's always great to have you uh, back on. Um, I want to get to some of your travel log elements uh, in in a minute, uh, but obviously, uh, very big, very historic news over the past 24 48 hours uh, that Finland and Sweden, two countries known for their, uh, co- you know, coveting their autonomy uh, for many decades in the in the case of Finland, and certainly centuries in the case of Sweden. What what does the uh, membership to NATO of both of these countries mean mean strategically and especially defense industrially, given that they're they're both very, very capable defense industrial players, even if they are on the smaller side of the universe?
1: Well, I think, I mean, the first thing, it's a massive cost imposition to Russia. If you think about, you know, particularly Russia's, um, the strategic assets that they have in Murmansk and to the east of Murmansk, um, it, it really... You know, it would have been one thing to contend with the feet, the Finnish or, and possibly even the Swedish Air Force. It's another thing when you start thinking about basing um, of uh, NATO forces, US forces in those countries in the event or leading up to a conflict. And um, I, I just think that's, that's probably one of the most important elements of this. From a defense industrial base standpoint, you know, Sweden has tried to chip away Particularly in the U.S. market, um, w- with some minor successes, they're obviously on the T7 program, which I think is is worth reiterating. Finland, not so much, although they've they really have been transitioning from primarily, uh, you know, kind of a mix of older Soviet and American kit to now more American kit. But they they also have an interesting uh, defense industrial base uh, via Patria, so. It, it will open. Hopefully, it will open up some some more two way trade. <laughs> Frankly, you know the, the trade has probably been more balanced, uh, unbalanced in the favor of the United States uh, vis-a-vis Finland. But Sweden, you know, it's it's not just uh, the U.S. market; it's the broader NATO market as well, and where, and where they've been a player. But obviously, being part of the alliance, I think that just gives them a little bit more. Um, you think about interoperability or you know, it, it will make countries less hesitant to buy Sweden, uh, Swedish kit and product if they felt there was a risk that they would declare neutrality in a particular contingency that NATO might get involved in.
0: Uh, and uh, I say this, uh, and everybody hears me say it, right? Former uh, Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt points out that Sweden stopped being neutral once it joined the EU. Indeed, you know, he, he makes the case that the EU mutual defense uh, clause is is as powerful, if not more so, than uh, than uh, NATO's Article Five. Um, let me uh, take you to the latest war takeaways. Uh, and wild wildcards. Um, two really, really thoughtful notes. One on sort of what to expect this week uh, that you put out, but then sort of things, things to be be thinking about from from your standpoint. What are the latest uh, takeaways? Right, Ukrainian forces, um, you know, p- pushing almost to the Russian border uh, to to try to uh, take Kharkiv uh, back in full, um, and and some you know, and news reports of some setbacks uh, for the Russians even in the east um what are your latest war takeaways and and what are your sort of four wild cards that we have to be paying attention to
1: well i think the you know look i don't think anybody's the ukrainians have been able to yes they have been able to claw back some territory around kharkiv but i think there was also a admission over the weekend that they've actually been suffering pretty substantial casualties um and so this is this is kind of a grinding You know, no big lightning, you know, 40 kilometer day type advances. I wouldn't, I would say certainly Russia bit off way more than they can chew. And the Ukrainians were very effective around Kiev. You know, as the battle moves more into the Donbass and then the southern part of the country, um, and and you have higher Russian concentrations, this, to me, it just seems like this is going to go on for a while. Now, I think. That was also probably a, a consensus that the market reached, or markets reached, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, when when they stopped hoping for some kind of negotiated settlement. But um, uh, you know, th- I think that was that was probably one thing that kind of stuck in my mind um, over the weekend and, and thinking about where we are in the conflict. Um, the the surprises, you know, are still in the look. <laughs> we could all wake up one day and find out that there's been some abrupt change in the Kremlin. Um, I don't know how probable that is. Um, my bias is probably not to count very heavily on that, that scenario, but it, it would still be a risk. And I think if that happened, it, it could open up a whole other range of uncertainties about then which way does Russia move? I mean, you know, the optimists would say, well, they rejoin the West. The pessimists would say, well, no, the military might say that, uh, you know, Putin wrecked the Russian military without behaving decisively against Ukraine. And you suddenly have this, you know, pariah militarized state um, that's got payback coming. So um, and, and I think, you know, we can talk about some of the others. There's still a risk of escalatory behavior by by Russia. Um, Hypothetically, they could shoot down NATO ISR assets or conceivably conduct the type of raids that Ukraine has been conducting in Russia against um, infrastructure in NATO countries that are supporting um, supporting the war in, in Ukraine. I'm, I'm thinking of Poland or Romania, for example, where all of a sudden, you know, gee, what happened to those four railroad bridges? Um, and the last thing, Vago, I'll just mention it because I think, you know, the more... <laughs> There is a camp, I think, that believes, you know, this is the time you can really put it to Russia. And I am intrigued about, well, what happens if Ukraine has really further degraded Russia's Black Sea naval assets? And at the same time, you know, I think this summer is going to be very ugly in terms of the ramifications of the cutoff of, of uh, Ukrainian agricultural exports. I conceivably could see something akin to, you know, what the U.S. did with Kuwaiti um, shipping in the uh, Iran-Iraq war under Operation Praying Mantis, where you're actually providing protection for ships that might be moving agricultural goods out of uh, Odessa, for example, um, and and that would raise the risk of, of another clash between Russia and NATO.
0: I was going to I was going to take you there uh, in, a, in a minute uh, about what that would look like. And I know Ukrainian officials have sort of been warning people, you know, that we, we still have a lot of wheat here. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, the, the challenge is getting it out, because obviously it would be uh, a lot of that uh, grain uh, would not be just limited to exiting the country by a couple of rail lines, but was actually shipped uh, from uh, Black Sea ports. Well, well yeah, uh, and Potessa, I think it's, a,
1: it's almost impractical to ship it by rail. Um, you know, as he mentioned at the start, I'm in Israel, uh, but you know, just north is Lebanon. I think they're they're looking at a a pretty tough um, situation. The rest of North Africa had been highly dependent on Ukrainian and Russian wheat exports, so it's something. And I saw something over the weekend that India said they were going to not export wheat, so it, it's a problem that you need to manage but I think the longer the war goes on and the, the more that Russia may be weakened the more there's a chance to break that blockade. Um, again it, it just goes back to uh, you know history doesn't always repeat itself but sometimes it rhymes and right. um, you could see that you could see the same kind of setup you saw in, in, with the Iran-iraq war and, and the, the need to kind of convoy ships um, so that they could uh, could, could trade again.
0: Uh, And I should point out, right, I mean, Egypt falls in that category as well, that it's, uh, you know, among the many nations that are eager uh, to uh, get there. Hands on that uh, Ukrainian wheat. Um, your odds on the conflict. Uh, you mentioned frozen conflict. We had Barry Pavel on from the Atlantic Council last week, uh, one of the finest uh, strategic minds in Washington, um, and and made the case that look, I mean, when it gets into a frozen conflict, you're actually now a little more you're you're now on Putin's turf, uh, and yeah. with you know attention uh, flagging uh, being being a challenge, and what he what he hopes will happen from your standpoint, how are you changing the odds on the conflict? Well, I
1: haven't. I haven't changed them. I guess that's the point. Um, frozen conflict to me is still, it's kind of the the lines are more or less frozen. And, and the presumption is that Ukraine doesn't have the full offensive military power or, or that there will be a, a Russian collapse to the extent that Ukraine could claw back all the terry, ter- territory that Russia took since 2014. So that would obviously include uh, Crimea um, and, and the eastern parts of Donbass. But um you know, I, with anything like this you you adjust as events unfold. Um, we'll see, but I think right now that that to me is still my base case that this is just going to go on for a while. <clears throat> you know, you still see sortie rates that are, oh you know, no, nothing in what we saw in the initial days of the war, for example, um, a little bit more activity by the Ukrainian uh, Air Force and helicopter uh, forces as well. but I don't know, uh, I, I just think this is, You know, I'm mindful, Vago, of the fact that that we really are dealing with a a lot of very little information on the Ukrainian side. And that's what I thought was interesting, this admission that they have suffered fairly heavy losses. (coughs) The U.S. (coughs) and the other equipment that's provided by by uh, European countries has certainly kept them in the fight. That's a good thing. Um, But but I wouldn't say that we're, we're at a decisive stage yet.
0: Uh, And uh, reports that I think two S-300 batteries, uh, Ukrainian S-300 batteries uh, were lost, uh, which is very, very important given how um, cleverly the Ukrainians uh, have cross-connected their entire military capability. Um, There are a lot of reconsideration of mental models in the wake of this war, I think that's clear, right? A lot of debate about the utility of tanks, uh, the importance of unmanned systems, the importance of loitering uh, munitions, right? I mean, um, the vulnerability of, uh, you know, uh, army attack uh, aviation, depending on how you do it for all my US army friends out there. um, What, um, you know, the intelligence community is reassessing, uh, as you made clear in your note, right? CNN reporting the US intelligence community is is reassessing um, you know, how they got this wrong uh, to a degree yeah. or what they got right uh, in it. And and you're noting, you know, there may, might not be as many lessons or maybe the lessons that people think uh, in the wake of the unmanned elements uh, of this, uh, despite the success of you know commercially available drones like uh, Digi's uh, or the Biroctar, which is an original General Atomics Nat, right? The three decades right. ago the company right. licensed produced that, and it's become a very popular product. Um, even if it was originally an Israeli product, actually, to put it, uh, you know, or is Israeli really DNA in it? Let's put it that way. Uh, in in terms of Abe Karam's role in de- designing the aircraft, walk us through, from your standpoint, sort of the emerging lessons and what all of these streams mean from from your standpoint, well,
1: I don't. I I thought it was interesting, as actually some of this was on display last week during the uh, the oversight hearings that Congress is holding on the FY twenty three budget. You had um, the Commandant of the Marine Corps basically stating, "Hey, what we're seeing in um, in the war is validating uh, force design twenty thirty. You know, smaller groups um, operating. You know." Uh, in contested environments and able to strike over long ranges very precisely. At the same time, you had the army chief, of staff stating, well, no, you know, the helicopter is still alive. And well, because the Russians really haven't been operating combined arms effectively, you know, they're, they're not doing the things the way that we're doing. And the same is true for the, the way that they've employed their tanks. So, look, this is going to take months and maybe years to sort out. Um, you know, people are already, as you naturally would expect them to do, are going to join the debate. I kind of riffed off an article that <laughs> is in the current issue of International Security um, that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, it just said why drones have not revolutionized war. Now it was written um, by I guess four or five authors, um, and it seemed to really look at. It, it didn't seem to look at it. Looked at the conflicts prior to uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. But, uh, you know, some of the threats that they talked about, I don't think you'd really necessarily change them. Their point was, um, when they're used in a combined arms, as part of a combined arms package, they can be very effective. But I think, to your point, Vago, you know, the idea that you're just going to create this drone force and that's going to be your sword um you, it's going to get knocked out of your hand pretty quickly and um and, and so that i think is maybe one of the lessons that um pe- people will <laughs> maybe maybe take away but it, but it was a good article and i think it's it's nice to see maybe some pushback about uh, oh the tank is dead or the helicopter is dead or drones are the way we're going to go you know look at how effect or the javelin missile is what's going to define future warfare i mean i i think Like we've had this conversation before and I always think just because we're in Israel, (laughs) the opening days of the 73 war um, along the Suez Canal, um, I think the Israelis quickly adjusted or readjusted (laughs) very effectively against the anti-tank missile threat and, um, and ultimately turned that around, that conflict around very quickly.
0: Uh, I know you're in Israel, and tomorrow you're going to be going to the uh, uh, tank museum at Latrun. And I uh, really urge our audience, next time you find yourselves in Israel, that is really one of the world's finest armor. Uh, museums, um, and uh, in, in part because of the breadth uh, of the of the collection, and you're there up close and personal and can actually climb on, or at least you used to be able to climb on all the vehicles, so it's really cool being on the vehicle deck of a the Centurion or, uh, you know, a super Sherman tank, uh, and indeed, right, uh, some of those pontoon bridging uh, units from uh, the, the battle uh, for the Suez uh, Canal as well. I'm going to point out, right, the F-35 you know, when you were talking about a misbalance, right, I mean, uh, you know, Finland is an F-35 customer now uh, and certainly a tremendous capability. And, um, you know, which, which does, you know, sort of tilt the, the scales in terms of Finnish investment in the United States for, uh, versus the other way around. Um, and I would also point out, right, you said that how warfare is actually not changing. It's sort of not changing because of the president today, despite the fact that it's a high intensity war happening uh, on the, uh, the, you know, on the European continent. He's deploying several hundred more troops to Somalia of all places to continue counter uh, counter operations, uh, counter uh, operations there. Um- Let's just take a quick word from our sponsors. HII uh, sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's uh, annual symposium. Baron, you know you 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 take um, one of the great pleasures in talking to you whenever you take these international trips is you you uh, do battlefield tours. Uh, you tend to do them with historians and other expert uh, guides. Um, what were some of the takeaways? uh, from, from touring, for example, the Maginot line and other, uh, great, uh, sites, uh, sad sites, uh, in, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it was last week.
1: It was was last Tuesday and it was just out to Sedan. Um, there is, you know, that's more or less where the Maginot line ends, although it was very clear (laughs) from the number of fortifications that we saw in the way the fortifications were situated that, um, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it's really pretty formidable. The, the terrain, <clears throat> the terrain has changed a little bit, but not all that. It, we, we could go in a whole discussion about what happened, um, you know, on uh, I guess it was May 13th and May 14th, 1940. And then a couple of days after it, there's one particular um, fort in the Maseau line that was uh, uh, defeated by the Germans. and, and probably the, one of the more iconic ones. I mean, you know, look, Vaga, we, we, we hope to learn from history. And I think visiting this one particular fort, um, it's the uh, the Ouvrage de la Ferte um, in Ville-la-Ferte. La uh, and again, it's probably just to maybe 20 kilometers outside of Sedan. Um, we had a guide who took us down into the, the entire works of the tunnel, there were about 100 French soldiers who perished. Um, at that particular fort um, after a successful German assault. But I think a couple of lessons, um, you know, finish what you start. It was very clear from this fort, which I have great admiration for French engineering. Um, And it is a marvel when you look at this thing and think about the amount of work that went into this, you know, this one was built, I don't think, around 1938, 1939, but... um, the whole concept, you know, I think gets gets dismissed as uh, you know marginal line mentality. But then, I, I would take issue with some of that, and uh, I also feel strongly that um, you know when you actually get in and look at these things, realize what parts were not completed or what were what was missing. Um, periscope on one of the cupolas was unavailable because of budget cutbacks. Um, there was supposed to be more um, fire containment, fire doors that were gone. They, they weren't completed because of a budget constraint. So, uh, you know, it, these are just reminders that great ideas, great technologies. Um, I, I frankly think the concept was was sound in, in, a, in an interesting way. Um, and it's always good to go tromp around these things because you can develop some pretty interesting counter narratives. but I, I just... Um, I think of it today, you know, we, we, faster acquisition times, um, start what you finished, uh, don't keep the old junk around. Uh, we've had those discussions time and time again, and actually, um, you know, some well thought out plans, I think can can provide some pretty robust, not, not that it's gonna be foolproof or, or impossible to defeat, but um, you know, when, boy, I just think of trying to take these things, it would have been a pretty, pretty tough
0: task. Uh, and, and the reason why the, you know, right, uh, because they weren't building it, and they thought the forest would be impregnable. That's how the Germans actually managed to get through, right? I mean, the, the line actually was pretty sound.
1: Well, yeah, and that, that's the interesting point about there's part of this was not fully extended, extended north of Sedan that's where the Germans punched through. There are a couple of, I mean, all these things, they fall apart. The decision made to pull troops back that probably should have been remain in the line. Um, There was a panic, I believe, on May 13th. The report that German tanks had broken through when they had, it was not a blitzkrieg action. This was a slog, you know, fest with infantry. Um, So again, it's just, it's always instructive to go visit these sites, um, particularly when people have, I mean, we had dinner with someone who called it the Edsel of the night of World War Two, and I, I wanted to, you know, get up and yell at him that uh, no, no, absolutely, this was this was really a pretty interesting concept. Uh, and again, I could go on about it, but um, but I'd, I'd urge people, you know, anytime you get the chance. And the interesting thing is, our particular guide said, you know, they they got some Americans, Australians. Actually, he said he's had a couple of Peruvians, but. Um, You know, people we had dinner with uh, Saturday night um, (laughs) weren't even aware of it. So, you know, you can actually go visit one of these sites. There's a dinner in Paris. So
0: for what it's worth. I I couldn't agree with you more because I think that uh, the Maginot line still offers a lot of lessons, in part because where it was done and done right, it was very effective. Where it was done wrong, it was a vulnerability and the magnificence of the engineering um, and and just the sheer factors and placement and all of that other stuff. But then uh, there's also a key intelligence piece of it, right? I mean, it also depended on whether or not the guys commanding it were using, making best use of the intelligence, but also um, getting the most out of their fortification, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, that that kind of gets back to this <laughs> report that the U.S. was going to be U.S. intelligence agencies were going to be. Conducting a review of how they assess the military capability of different countries. Obviously, you know, you could argue that to some extent, um, an assessment of Russian military force has been a failure. Although I think as CNN pointed out, some people in the State Department seem to have gotten this right about the, <clears throat> particularly the effectiveness of Ukrainian uh, military. But then, you know, this also happened on top of a a, a big miss on the assessment of the Afghan security forces and. Back to the Maginot line um, you know I think had the French held at sedan it would have been a different different outcome potentially um, it, none of this is none of this is ever preordained I think as we saw uh, you know after May 24th you can all look at stuff on paper but these are still humans that that ultimately make decisions and we're all
0: fallible I'm, uh, I, I, as somebody who's been to, uh, I've been blessed to have been able to go to Paris as often uh, as, I, as I have. I've never made it there uh, to, uh, to, to that part of the country, and, and certainly uh, will we'll do so the next time I'm in France. Um, let, me, let me ask you uh, I, I want to get to uh, the calendar uh, here in a moment because uh, there's a lot going on, but talk to me about Alan B's map and your takeaways uh, from uh, being in Israel.
1: Oh, I, I mean, we just have been here for a day. That's just we're at, a, you know, Jerusalem. I'm in a hotel, the American Colony, where uh, I'm on the Lawrence of Arabia floor. And as I speak, I'm looking at a General Allenby's annotated map uh, from the attack on Jerusalem. So um, it's always remarkable how how much history is
0: concentrated in Jerusalem. That's for sure. Indeed. Uh, and uh, T.E. Lawrence, certainly one of history's uh, most uh, interesting military figures. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, let's ask you about uh, what's ahead for uh, the week. Very busy one uh, that will now include, according to the uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, passage of the $40 billion uh, U.S. package uh, of aid for Ukraine uh, in a vote that uh, I think he's announced will happen on Wednesday. Measure was being held up by Rand Paul uh, and there are other GOP members who um, don't, don't, want to be spending the money and believe that the united states should not be um you know uh getting Yeah, continued. I not I just I, it's just For a sure. comment
1: on that you know i think anytime something like that happens because there there've been a number of gop members who who were pushing back on this stuff and i just feel you know it's it's another signal of potential isolationism um you can argue about the The package, the size of it, all this other stuff, but it's just at this particular time, in this particular event, um, it's it's a it it it's a harbinger of what might happen in 2022 or 2024.
0: Uh, it it, it, exactly right. I mean, it's much cheaper to give that 40 uh, billion dollars and help to preserve the global rules-based order. Maybe it sends a deterrent signal to the Chinese. Uh, it certainly complicates Russia's decision making uh, going forward, right? They were going to do something like this at some point. Um, right. And it's better that it happened in this way than it does in a broader shooting war that would involve the NATO alliance. This is much, much cheaper. Uh, way of way of doing things, even if there are going to be long-term economic costs imposed, right? McDonald's yeah. announcing, for example, it's going to close or at least sell off its uh, operations there. Walk us through some of the key uh, things that you're tracking over the course of the week and stuff that the audience should be paying attention to.
1: Well, obviously, you know, the oversight hearings continue. I wouldn't say there was anything dramatic from last week's hearings, but always these little incremental tidbits you pick up. I know CSIS is doing an event, uh, I believe later today on um, on the future of the Marine Corps and uh, Force Design 2030. And then they're doing something on Ukraine, another May 18th event on the Space Force. Um, Atlanta Council has a couple of events going on. I think there's one that's kind of interesting about um, kind of this intersection of defense and autonomy. Um, the China Aerospace Studies Institute is doing a May 17th conference on great power competition and deterrence. So much as we focus on um, <laughs> on uh, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. You know, the, the, a lot of this focus is only going to be, you know, about China. So, um, and Chatham House in uh, London is doing something on May 17th on China and Ukraine as well.
0: Uh, I think next week, you're going to be taking a week off, which is perfectly understandable because you'll be on travel. Uh, But look forward to having you back the week after that, Byron, to explain uh, to the audience some of the key takeaways from your uh, trip. I know you uh, really bring a lot of fresh thinking in the wake of these. uh, And it's always a pleasure. Um, Thanks so very much. Bon voyage. Uh, Hope you guys have a great week. Toda roba, Yeah, exactly. Toda